comes from Matthew 5, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is God's word. This morning, we have a uh, rather sensitive, but a very significant topic before us. What does it mean to honor Jesus as king with respect to sex, marriage, and divorce? Uh, It's a sensitive topic because it's rather personal, um, and it's an area in which many of us have made mistakes or have been directly affected by the mistakes of others. Some of us grew up in homes that were torn apart by marital unfaithfulness or divorce. Uh, Some of us are living in those homes right now. Some of us have been divorced. Perhaps we're remarried or maybe married to a divorced person, and some of those divorces were not for the right reasons. Some of us are involved sexually with someone who is not our spouse. And some of us just dream and think about that a lot. So this passage is going to raise rather uncomfortable questions for us this morning that touch each of us in one way or another. It's a sensitive topic, yet it's also a very significant topic. Because contrary to popular opinion, marriage, sex, and divorce are not just ideas out there floating around and up for grabs. Jesus has an opinion on them. In fact, he not only has the authority to determine what purpose and shape they should take, but also to judge those who ignore or try to overturn his design and purpose for marriage and sex. I don't think many of us believe that today, that it's that big a deal. And yet right here, as Jesus is laying out his vision of what does life look like in my kingdom, under my reign and authority as the king of heaven and earth, he gives us this decree that marriage is a holy covenant, that sex is a holy activity, both of which were designed by God and for God and his kingdom purposes. So my prayer this morning is that we would deal sensitively with this topic, recognizing that we are all sinners in need of grace, And yet that we would deal seriously with it. That to whatever extent we've ignored or overturned or rewritten God's rule, his vision for marriage and sex, that that we would be convicted by his spirit and strengthened by that same Holy Spirit to repent and turn away from our sin and to turn and follow Jesus joyfully. That's my prayer this morning. So please pray with me as we ask God to, to meet us during this time. 
Lord, we recognize that we are in so many ways, um, in so many ways we fall short. And this is a, a topic that for many of us touches uncomfortably close to home and comes with such a wide variety of emotions that we can barely sort out what our heart is even doing when we think about it. So Jesus, we pray that you would be kind to us this morning, that you would show us yourself, your vision, that you would be kind to show us the truth, that you would be kind to remind us of grace. Lord, may we take seriously your word And may we take just as seriously the gospel of grace that you've given us. We ask it in your name. Amen. We've been going through the gospel of Matthew for a few months now, and we are in the the famous portion of it known as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus began his sermon with what's called the Beatitudes, kind of the family portrait of life under his rule and reign, but then he transitioned to connect the dots between that opening portrait of life and then the ancient law of Israel that we find in the Old Testament. Jesus wants to show us how what he's saying here does not overturn God's law that he had already given to his people so long ago, but rather that Jesus and his kingdom are actually the fulfillment of that law. The whole thing was pointing to this. He also wants to point out a significant difference between how his kingdom and how the religious leaders of his day, groups like the scribes and the Pharisees, how each of them handled God's law. The scribes and the Pharisees were content to keep their obedience on the surface. So, where everyone could see it and then praise them for it. Uh, you know, they would keep the letter of the law, even announce it with trumpets or post it on Facebook and, and get the, the praise for it. But it didn't come from the heart. And therefore, it didn't really reflect the purpose of the law. It was a show. It wasn't real. Jesus goes below the surface. Just as the law is itself but the tip of the iceberg expressing God's character underneath, so our obedience to the law must come from below the surface. True righteousness comes from a heart changed by the gospel. And so Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. True righteousness goes deeper than that. And from that verse to the end of the chapter, Jesus offers six corrections to the way that the religious leaders of his day were handling God's law, forcing us to drill beneath the surface, to drill beneath the surface of the law and to see the heart and purposes of God, and to drill beneath the surface of our own hearts, to expose what's really there, and to show us what it looks like to truly honor Jesus as king. Last week, uh, Pastor Bruce showed us how keeping the sixth commandment, that you shall not murder, is not about checking the box that says, yeah, I've never physically done that to somebody, but about the posture of our hearts toward one another. 
To call someone fool is to be liable to the same kind of judgment as having killed them. What goes on in our heart matters just as much as what happens with our hands. The two sections that we are looking at this morning deal generally with the seventh commandment from the Old Testament. You shall not commit adultery. And notice how that word comes up in both of the, the sayings we're looking at. The first one is 27 through 30, and then 31 through 32. But notice how that word adultery comes up in both. First uh, 27 and 28. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully has already committed a, adultery with her in his heart. And then again in verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's the theme tying these two sections together. And by adultery, the Bible's talking about engaging in sexual activity with someone other than your spouse or with someone else's spouse. It's breaking the marital covenant. And under the Mosaic law, it was punishable by death. And the reason that the punishment for adultery was so severe is because marriage and sex are so holy to God and his design. Marriage is a holy covenant. Sex is a holy activity. Both were designed by God and for God and his purposes. They are holy to him, which means, by the way, that he has the right to say what they're for and how they should be shared in and enjoyed. To treat something as holy means that you recognize its purpose and you respect its value. You recognize its purpose and you respect its value. We don't usually use the word holy to describe things in our households, but We do this on a small scale every day. So there are items in our home that we attribute special value to and that we use just for special purposes. For instance, you don't drain the lawnmower oil into the crystal salad bowl. I, I dare you men to try that this weekend and see how it goes. It's not a good idea. Neither do you toss the china into the trash can when you're done with supper. There's a big difference between China and Chinette. And the wise husband will take note of that. You know, one is a family treasure. The other is simply trash when you're done. One has a special purpose. You don't eat on it every day. You don't, you know, you, you just pull it out for special occasions like an anniversary or a holiday meal. It also has a precious value. You don't just toss it into the dishwasher like everything else. You, you place it in there gently, making sure there's minimal rubbing against other dishes so that it doesn't get chipped and, and so on. You recognize its special purpose. You respect its value. That's what it means to treat something as holy. So it is marriage and sex have a special purpose and a precious value which have been assigned by God himself. Marriage was God's idea. And within marriage, sex. So look at Genesis 20, excuse me, Genesis 2, verses 20 through 24 with me. 
But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God is the author of marriage. He designed it for the deepest level of companionship and completion, not least for our calling to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. According to God's design, marriage is a permanent, exclusive, and public commitment between one man and one woman to share every part of their lives with each other. I'm going to say that again. According to God's design, marriage is a permanent, exclusive, and public commitment between one man and one woman to share every part of their lives with each other. It is a holy institution. And within marriage, sex is a holy activity. It's the consummation of that deepest union and commitment within human relationships. There's no other relational context in Scripture in which sexual activity of any kind is ever permissible than marriage between a man and a woman. But as beautiful and as important as all that already is, the purpose and value of marriage go far beyond the human plane. It's far more than just what happens between people. They were designed by God, not merely for oneness and commitment at the human level, but as a display of God's steadfast commitment to us and as a foreshadowing of our spiritual union with God. When the Apostle Paul is giving instructions on how husbands and wives are to treat each other in Ephesians 5, He continually ties the various roles in marriage to how they display our relationship with God. So he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. There's a display happening there. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There's a display, a reflection happening there. And then he comes right out and just says it in Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is profound. This mystery of marriage I'm talking about, it's profound. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. That's what's really at stake in marriage between a a husband and wife. The display of Christ. In other words, the love that we express to one another in marriage, the sacrificial love, the covenant loyalty, is designed to be a living sermon to each other and to the world of what Christ is like and how he relates to his people. Your marriage is to be a sermon to the world. Just as Jesus laid his life down for us on the cross to rescue us from our sins, so husbands are to reflect that love to their wives, to lay their lives down and die for them, to sacrifice for them. 
pointing them to Jesus, serving them. Just as God will never leave nor forsake his people, so the permanence and commitment of marriage is to reflect that undying love and commitment. Our marriages represent Christ. And within marriage, as J. Thomas and Gerald Highstand explain, God created sex to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. So just as the husband and wife become one in sex, so through faith in Jesus, we are united with God in the most intimate way. That's the picture 1 Corinthians 6 attaches to that. Which is why one of the most common metaphors for unfaithfulness to God in the Old Testament is adultery and prostitution. Jeremiah 3 verse 9 says, Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. So her idolatry of bowing down to false gods made of stone and wood was spiritual adultery because Israel had been united with God in the covenant of marriage. They were his bride, his special people. They broke that covenant with God. So marriage and sex are designed by God to be a display of his covenant faithfulness and of our spiritual union with him. God's commands about the exclusivity of it, about the permanence and love and loyalty of marriage and sex, reflect God's single-minded connection and devotion to his bride, to the church. And when sex is removed from marriage, or when marriage is broken and dissolved, what happens to the picture? It's broken. It's ruined. The the picture's ruined. The purpose is thwarted. The value is despised. The wine flutes used to celebrate the wedding day toast become a bedpan. And we toss the whole thing out the window. That's what we do to the holiness of it. And, of course, not only is the picture destroyed, but the lives of those through whom it was displayed. And so God prohibits adultery because holiness and because of the holiness of marriage and sex. Now, come back to our Matthew 5 passage. It's not as though the scribes and Pharisees were okay with adultery. They knew that was wrong. They agreed with God's law on that point. Unlike our culture today, which tends to be rather unimpressed with the sin. They knew That it was wrong. They just thought that they could keep the letter of the law on the surface while ignoring the heart underneath. And Jesus takes significant issue with this. And it's important to note that in this passage, Jesus' criticism is not against the world around us. That's easy enough to do. I mean, there's no question that our world has gone insane with respect to sex and marriage. But that's not Jesus' concern here. His concern is the extent to which that insanity has overtaken his own people. The people who claim to be part of God's kingdom. 
The problem here is not merely ignoring or overturning God's purposes, but thinking that one can do that and still be okay with God. That's what he's speaking against. So in other words, as we look at this passage, our first response should not be to wave a finger at the godless trajectory of the world around us, as godless as it is. Our first response should be to search our own hearts and to ask God to search our own hearts, to invite him to do so as we look at his word. There are two ways that the religious leaders were overturning the holiness of marriage through their surface-level obedience. Two ways we're tempted to do likewise today. The first is with respect to lust. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, notice the depth at which Jesus is operating, drilling beneath the surface. He's aiming at the heart. Now, this may seem prudish to some. Uh, What's the problem with just looking? As one of the, the women's basketball coaches at my high school once said to a friend of mine, I figure I can read the menu as long as I don't order. No harm done, right? Just check it out. But that's the very sentiment that Jesus is trying to correct. The problem here is not noticing an attractive person or even feeling the impulse of lust when you see someone attractive. The problem is following that impulse. Following it. Feeding it with your imagination. Looking, as the ESV puts it, with lustful intent. Neither is the problem sexual desire itself. Again, sex was God's idea and the desires that go with it. And within the context of marriage, those desires are a happy and holy thing. They're very pure desires. The problem is when we feed those desires outside of marriage and direct them towards someone that doesn't belong to us. Someone who has not been bound to us by the holy covenant of marriage. So you might think of lust as sexual covetousness. Okay? To covet something is to want for yourself what rightfully belongs to someone else. It's not wrong for you to want what already is yours. There's nothing wrong with that. It is wrong to want what belongs to someone else. So lust is wanting someone sexually who doesn't belong to you. Whether we direct those desires towards someone we see on the street or the cover of the magazine at Stop and Shop or toward the women who are objectified and dehumanized through the porn industry. And and though we may never touch that person, to desire them sexually is to commit adultery with them in our hearts. It removes sex and sexual desire from the holy bond of marriage it thwarts the purpose therefore and cheapens the value and it's not good for you either lust is one of those secret sins that that we try to hide but that eats away at our souls from the inside where no one can see it and it sets us up for greater failure as kent hughes writes 
sensual sins are preceded by sensual fantasies. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. Think about that. No sensual sin that was ever committed was not first imagined. It's not enough to say that I can honor Jesus as king with respect to marriage and still feed my lustful desires. We must repent and turn away from lust and turn toward Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. The second way that the religious leaders in Jesus' day thought that they could keep the letter of the law and honor God in marriage uh, but still get what they wanted out of life and sex was by making sure they filled out the proper paperwork for divorce. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now here Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, part of God's law. And what he's challenging is not the law itself, but what the religious leaders were doing with it. So later in Matthew 19, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason or or for any cause? Matthew 19.3. In other words, what are the legitimate grounds for divorce? Now, their question actually reflects a debate uh, among different schools of thought within the Pharisees, some of whom thought it was that the only proper grounds for divorce was sexual sin, and others who thought it could be something as trite as burning dinner. Uh, Seriously. And we we have our own lists that we add to that today. You know, I don't love her anymore. I've found someone else. We got married too young. My expectations were too unrealistic. So on. But Jesus says to them, you missed the point. You missed the point. Go back to the beginning. Look again at the design. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Because if you do, the picture's ruined. The value is despised. The purpose is thwarted and lives are destroyed. So stop trying to find loopholes, Jesus says, and start being faithful to the promise that you made before God and man and to the very purpose and value of your marriage. Now the Pharisees still want to know, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. keeps going back to the creational design. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness or sexual immorality and marries another woman commits 
adultery. Matthew 19, 7 through 9. So in other words, divorce was not part of the design, but because we live in a sinful and fallen world, it was a concession made in order to protect the divorced wife. In the ancient world, an adult woman's means of support was pretty much contingent on being married. The world that Moses was giving these instructions in. If her husband should for some reason divorce her, how could she be provided for? And so Moses wanted a document stating that the divorce had happened so that she would be free to remarry and be provided for. Without that document proving the divorce, who, who would marry her and risk being killed for adultery? They need, she needed to be freed up to be remarried. It was a concession made in order to protect the vulnerable. But as Sinclair Ferguson clarifies, a, a law that was clearly intended to safeguard the women in Israel was turned into a, an escape clause for self-indulgent men. Oh yeah, just file the right paperwork, it'll be just fine. And Jesus will have none of it. That is not true righteousness because it doesn't come from a heart that reflects God's character and purposes. Simply going through the motions, doing the right paperwork, does not mean you're keeping the heart of the law. In fact, Jesus says in both Matthew 5.32 and in 19.9 that if you divorce your wife without proper cause and she remarries someone else, you make her an adulterer because she should still be married to you. Or if you, in a similar way, marry a divorced woman, you commit adultery because that woman should still be married to her husband. But notice I say, without proper cause. Though there's disagreement among pastors and and scholars, I do believe that there are two clear exceptions in Scripture in which divorce is not sinful. It's always caused by sin in some way, but it's not always sinful. And if it can be said that divorce is permissible in those cases, then I think it follows that in such cases, remarriage is also permissible as well, since that was the whole purpose of the divorce certificate in Deuteronomy 24, to free the wife for remarriage. Now, Paul deals with one exception in 1 Corinthians 7. We don't have time to look at that this morning, but it's the case in which a non-believing spouse abandons a believer. In that case, he says it is not sinful to divorce. Jesus deals with the other exception here in Matthew 5 and in chapter 19, namely sexual immorality. And I think he retains this exception for the same reasons that Moses made a concession in Deuteronomy 24, for the protection of the vulnerable. Divorce is not required in cases of sexual immorality or adultery. Forgiveness and reconciliation is always preferable, even as God sought after his wayward wife, you and me, as we gave our worship and devotion to things other than him. And yet, because we still live in a fallen world waiting for the final wedding supper of the Lamb, 
divorce is permissible in cases of sexual immorality where one party has broken the covenant through sexual activity with someone else. And that word is pretty broad there. It does not exclusively refer to adultery, but sexual activity that's inappropriate. And sadly, there are times when the vulnerable spouse needs that kind of protection. The wife whose husband can't stop sleeping with every client he meets. The husband whose wife has up and left him and moved in with someone else and is starting her second family. There are times, sadly, when that divorce, you see why Jesus gave that exception. And though that's not the way it's supposed to be, and those who've had to live through that will be the first to tell you that, because of the hardness of human hearts, that exception remains. So marriage is a holy covenant. Sex is a holy activity. It was designed by God and for God and his kingdom purposes. And so you look at all of that. You look at at what, what Jesus is saying here, the weight of it, the seriousness of it, and you ask yourself, who among us stands innocent? Really? You know, whether... Our adultery takes a literal form, whether it takes the form of looking lustfully at someone, whether it takes the form of of an inappropriate divorce or remarriage. How do we, with unclean hands and impure hearts, dare draw near to God or call Jesus as king? How do we honor Jesus as king with respect to marriage and sex? Well, this is where we have to remember again what the whole purpose of marriage is for what it's all about even though we are so often and in so many ways unfaithful jesus christ our bridegroom will remain faithful to the end he is the great king who crossed the divide of heaven and earth to slay the dragon and win his bride and he did so at the price of his own life Our marriages are meant to point us to the gospel of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took every lustful glance, every bitter word, every broken promise, every adulterous act, whether physical or emotional or spiritual. He took it all onto himself to pay the death penalty that we deserved and to cleanse us of our sin and unite us with him. Ephesians tells us that Christ, our bridegroom, loved the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, (coughs) cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. Excuse me. So through faith in Jesus, through the gospel of Jesus that marriage is meant to display, that's where we find hope for our broken marriages and our broken hearts, our sinful rebellion against God. Through faith in Jesus, we're forgiven, we're cleansed and purified, we're united with God in the most intimate way possible. Through our union with Jesus, we are poised to treat marriage and sex with the honor and respect that they deserve, to recognize their holy purpose, to cleanse 
excuse me, to cherish their special value and to honor Jesus as king. The gospel is what makes the difference. And so, if you are married this morning, I want to say this to you. Stay married. Cherish your marriage and nurture it. Spend time together in God's word and prayer. Get time away from the kids. Younger couples, spend time with older couples learning from them. Older couples, take the younger couples' kids off their hands every once in a while so they can get away. (laughs) Think about the promises you made before God and man. Think about God's promise to you. And by his grace, seek to be faithful to that promise. And if you need help, get help. There's no shame in that. If you are at the end of your rope and you are just butting heads and whatever it is in your relationship and you need help, get help. Cherish your marriage by fighting for it. And if you're thinking about divorce, slow down. And talk to someone who's going to counsel you from the gospel of Jesus. That's my word to the married this morning. If you are divorced because of sexual immorality, because your spouse committed sexual immorality, or else denies the faith and has abandoned you, I want you to know this morning that our heart breaks for you. That that was not okay, the way that you were treated. We do not look down on you, and we don't want anyone to look down on you. As though you're the sinner, when in fact you are the one who was sinned against. We love you, and we want to come alongside you and be family to you and help you find the healing that is in Christ. If you are divorced, and shouldn't be, perhaps even remarried now, but your divorce was not because of sexual immorality or because a a non-believer abandoned you, then I want to say this to you this morning. We love you too. And there is forgiveness with repentance. Sinful divorce is no small offense. It is no small thing to tear apart what God has joined together. And yet it is not the unpardonable sin either. If that's your situation, then I think repentance means acknowledging your sin for what it is, seeking forgiveness from those that you've sinned against, and remaining as you are. That's where Paul directs us in 1 Corinthians 7, to remain as you are. If single, don't pursue remarriage unless it's with your former spouse. If remarried, Don't add the sin of divorce to a sinful remarriage. Stay married. Confess, seek forgiveness, and remain as you are and find the grace and forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus. There is cleansing there for all of us. To everyone, single, married, divorced, remarried, I want to say this this morning. Honor the holiness of marriage. And flee from sexual immorality. Do not 
cozy up to it and see how close you can get without getting burned. Fight. Fight with all the power of God's spirit. Fight with all the vigilance as though life itself depended on it. That is not always easy. And it's often a grueling battle that requires prayer and accountability. Friends coming alongside you. And that calls for radical steps of obedience. Listen to Jesus' exhortation in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, that's an incredibly graphic picture. And while Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here, we don't want to lose the gravity or the urgency of what he says. Marriage and sex are that holy. And honoring them require that kind of radical action when we're tempted. Not mutilation, but what Paul calls mortification. Putting it to death. John Stott offers a helpful clarification and application on this point. Mortification, or taking up the cross to follow Christ, means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. What does this involve in practice? Let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, objects you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind so you could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, things you do, or your feet, places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it, don't go. Behave as if you actually had cut off your hands and your feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. That's the meaning of mortification. Put it to death. Honoring Jesus as king with respect to marriage and sex calls for radical repentance and radical dependence on the gospel of Jesus. The old hymn reminds us, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is the truth that we hold on to. And it's the truth that we declare to each other as we conclude with the Lord's table this morning. Apart from 
the broken body of Jesus on our behalf, which is what the bread points us to, we have no hope for our broken lives or marriages. And apart from the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf, which is what the cup points us to, we have no hope for cleansing or forgiveness. But in Jesus, because of the great love with which he loved us, while we were yet sinners, we have forgiveness, we have hope, we have cleansing and wholeness, a fresh start. We have life everlasting, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And we look forward to that day when we'll share in another table, the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will finally be united to our bridegroom in every way, enjoying his presence forever. So if you are united with Christ by faith, if Jesus is your King and Savior, you've placed all your hope on him, join us in this table this morning. Celebrate the gospel with us. If you have unconfessed sin, especially any sin relating to sex and marriage, confess it before God silently. I'll give you time to do that. And then as soon as you're able afterwards, confess it to the people you've committed it against. And do so with the grace that this table offers as it lifts us up to Jesus. If you're not a Christian or you're not sure what that means... I ask that you simply let the elements pass this morning. And instead, consider Jesus' invitation to you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So as the ushers come forward...